anything wrong in this situation. He took a pinch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Could have gone without that. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Germans bomb Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers, we know it. Ask me about my winner. So I'm going to explain why I believe the college football powers got it correct with their four teams that are going to be able to compete for the national title. It looked pretty simple on paper coming into the weekend. You had what was you know, very entertaining, the fact that there were four, basically out of five, undefeated teams in college football, ranked one through four, all essentially with control of their own destiny. Obviously, that proves to not be true in Florida State's case. You got Michigan, you got Washington, you got Texas, you got Alabama. And I'm going to explain to you why they got the correct four teams. There's a thing called precedence that's been set throughout the world of college football, and it's existed for well over 100 years, but certainly more in a modern format where you're getting two teams to play each other for the national championship, which obviously, you know, for years upon years upon years, that wasn't the case. But in the modern format, the way it's set up, it's set as a better of the two evils for a team to lose a game earlier in the season than lose a game later in the season, which explains... Texas and Alabama being in over Georgia. Now, it doesn't make it right. There's plenty of people from you know the world of, of Georgia football fans, and obviously uh, a, the 29-game winning streak that came to an end, and the inability or the what could be considered unfairness that they won't have a chance to defend their two-time defending national championship. It's sad. But I believe they got it right. And if you look back at the past times, and we're not going back that far. Like I said, the BCS you know, has only existed for a handful of years. It's not like the BCS system and the CFP you know, goes back to 1894 when it was the world of, of Penn and other Ivy League schools that were dominating the world of college football. But you look, you look at the fact that a team can lose early like Alabama did. Their second game in the season, they lost to Texas. They end up winning out their final 11. And, of course, they win the SEC title in a game over Georgia that I believe wasn't as close as the final score was. And I thought that was an element that has to be considered, too. Uh, Georgia didn't get robbed in a game. They, they lost. They were down by 10, and they were fighting back to get it to 3. They never really had that chance to move down the field and be able to take the game from Alabama. But it's not really what I want to talk about now. I, I'm, I'm very interested in the sentiment of other college football fans. But what I don't really want to hear from is people that have a distinct bias. Obviously, this is, exists in a world of sports. People's opinions of the system and the way it's set up and whether it was right or whether it was wrong 
is strongly based off of their own biased opinion, based off of what team that they root for. Not just what team they root for, but you know whether you're against the SEC conference. You don't like the SEC. You're, you're obviously not going to be happy that Alabama is in. If you are one of those uh, goody-two-shoe people that uh, enjoy shaming others that are trying to come up with some sort of competitive advantage, and your answer is, they're cheating, they're cheating, and you say that about everybody all the time, then obviously you're going to have a biasness against Michigan. You know, if you don't like the Pac-12, you're not going to be a fan of Washington being in a position that they're in. And, you know, there's biasness that exists amongst fans, which are going to be the centripetal force of an individual opinion. But I believe the naysayers and then the people that actually put this together, the ones that were making the decisions, I think they got it right. Texas is getting rewarded for beating Alabama earlier in the season. You know, they're not, you know, they end up losing a game to Oklahoma. They're not penalized for that. And then, of course, it's all about the teams that aren't in it anymore. Georgia. Listen, Georgia just lost a game at the most inopportune time. Georgia could have made it easier for themselves. They could have beat Alabama. And had Georgia beat in Alabama, I think it would have been very difficult to come up with a scenario where you wouldn't have had the four undefeated teams in the playoff. You know, Washington took care of business, of course. Michigan did what they had to do. And Florida State ends up winning their game, and all of a sudden they're out of the top four. A lot of it has to do with the injury to their quarterback, you know, to Travis. You know, him ended up being, you know, not being available to play really hurts that team. And being on their third string quarterback in an unimpressive win, though it was a win against Louisville, kind of held against them. But I think it's more about Georgia losing. The fact that Texas and Alabama are both part of the CFP right now has to do strictly with Georgia losing. Alabama beating Georgia and not forgetting that Texas beat Alabama earlier in the season and all of a sudden those two teams are in and Georgia and Florida State are out. All strictly because of Georgia's loss. And like I said, had Georgia won, I can't come up with a scenario where I could justify Florida State being left out of the top four. Now, does it suck for anybody more than Florida State right now? Yeah, it's hard to say that. It's hard to say that anybody else got the shorter end of the stick than Florida State. They did what they had to do. Sometimes you, you say, hey, it's not about how you win the game. Just win the freaking game. This is one of those rare occurrences is how they won the game was held against them. They didn't blow out Louisville like they were expected to. Part of it was because they were on their third-string quarterback. It's not like they almost lost, though. And this is where I, I do feel a little bit for those that are biased. They're Florida State fans. Maybe they're ACC fans. Your team did get screwed a little bit. But I don't think got screwed by the selection committee as much as they got screwed by the fact that Georgia lost to Alabama. All of a sudden, when once Alabama beat Georgia... That's when Texas's name gets back into the discussion. Texas beat Alabama. Alabama beat Georgia. All of a sudden, Texas is a borderline team to get in. 
And then you have to decide, hey, is Alabama, with their one win, their win over Georgia, in spite of their loss against Texas earlier in the season, is it enough for them to leapfrog Georgia and Georgia to be out of the top four? Once that was decided, okay. You know, it was basically coming down to Florida State or Texas, and it would have been a tough sell to put Alabama in and all of a sudden not have Texas win in. So I believe the CF... P is set. I also think it's. I, I think it was done correctly, but most importantly, I think it's it's set for really the four. I think best teams in the country. Eh, maybe not. Maybe you feel Georgia's still better. Maybe you feel like Florida State got robbed. But I, I think we're set up for three very entertaining games. Uh, two games I'm going to watch on New Year's Day, and obviously uh, the following Monday for the college football championship this week is one of my favorite weeks of the entire year. Nothing to do with college football, obviously. Baseball tie will kind of remind those that it's the baseball winter meetings. One of the things that I, I take pride in and have done over the years is being able to be down there and being part of the mix. I'm okay with not going this year, but it, it doesn't mean that I'm not you know, kind of waiting with um, baiting breath to see what happens um, when it comes to certain players and moves that are made, I don't I don't know if everything's going to be solved by this week in Nashville. Probably not. Shohei Otani may make a decision. Uh, Yoshishibo Yamamoto might be more inclined to make his decision next week. And what's interesting, and I've said this before, one of the things that I find the most intriguing about the offseason this year is it's not just about a couple teams with a ton of money. And you know, you've heard me talk before about the Phillies' willingness to spend under David Dombrowski, the fact that the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs, we know that they have the financial resources to go all in when they decide to do that, which would not shock me or would not shock this person if they were a team to sign in Otani or a Yamamoto. Juan Soto out there. The fact that the Padres are looking for the highest return, I think, opens up the possibility Juan Soto for one year for a rental for a lot of different teams that could jump in and make this type of move. Juan Soto in Toronto for one year, I think, would be an absolute boom for that organization. What they've they've done with developing the pitching, the young players they got there, the fact that they made it to the postseason the last couple of years in a row, just to get that Juan Soto player to put them over the top. Obviously, there's a ton of talk about Soto and the Yankees, and I just hope that the Padres don't decide to allow themselves to be bullied by Brian Cashman. If the Yankees want to make the trade, and I've said this before, my biggest issue with Brian Cashman is the fact that he wants to do things on his own terms. He doesn't want to pay market value for a player. If he wants to make the trade for Juan Soto, he is going to have to give close to what the Padres are looking for. Or else I want to see another team go in there and give the Padres what they want. You, you don't want to pay what the player costs? Watch as another team goes and trades for him. You know, when it comes to negotiating a contract, the Yankees understand that they need to have the, the best offer. They need to have the, the be, a, be willing to uh, sacrifice the most years and the most dollars for a given player, or else they're going to risk losing them to another player. So the Yankees may be okay. All right, well, maybe Soto's 
out of our price range in regards to prospects. Maybe they move on to Cody Bellinger. You know, Yamamoto. You want to have him anchor in a rotation with Garrett Cole, especially when Garrett Cole has a chance to walk away at the end of this season. So it's going to be interesting to see how a lot of things unfold. But like I said, the most exciting part about this is that I feel there's a lot more teams in the mix this year than there were in the past. And whether it's a team that ends up signing Shohei Otani, I don't think it's just the Dodgers. I don't think it's just the Dodgers or the Mets or the Yankees. Like we've spoken about in the past, the teams with the most money, the teams that owners are willing to spend the most money. Like I said, it wouldn't shock me if Philadelphia got involved. It wouldn't shock me if Boston or Chicago got involved. It wouldn't shock me if the San Francisco Giants said, to hell with it. We're tired of finishing second when it comes to Aaron Judge and Carlos Correa and players of that echelon. Let's go out there and be the ones to get Shohei Otani. And the balance of power of baseball is going to be dictated by where Otani goes. If Otani goes to the Atlanta Braves, but the only issue I have with the Braves, and hear, hear, hear me out, you know that I'm uh, as a Mets fan, I'm not 100% in love with the Braves. But I love what the organization has done. I love the way their team is set up to win year after year and should be for the next series of years. One thing that I don't believe the Atlanta Braves do is they give they don't give that type of contract out there. There's not a player playing for them that's making $200 million, $300 million. You look at you know some of the contracts they have out there may have the potential with incentives and options and stuff like that to maybe pass it. But we all understand what it's going to cost to get Shohei Otani. Multiple $500 million plus contract offers out there for him. There's possibly in a $600 million range. Is he going to go to the Braves for considerably less? The precedence hasn't been set. You heard me talk about precedence when it comes to rewarding a team in college football for losing a game earlier in the season as opposed to later. The precedence has been set that the Braves don't spend this kind of money. Now, would this be the one exception? Would this be the one player that you'd say, uh, yeah, it's probably worth it to spend this money? Conventional wisdom says yes. I'd believe it once I saw it from the Braves. And that's not the only thing. Could, would he be a great fit? Absolutely. You're talking about the Braves who would probably be the favorite to win the World Series every year he's there. And they might be already. So I think it would be a great move for that organization and a time to say, you know what? Now is the time. You you want to build a dynasty in Atlanta? Go out there and get Shohei Otani. It's going to cost you. My favorite part of the program, we're about to jump into what I like to call saving sports history. I, this is the time where I talk a lot about things that don't get discussed amongst the uh, remembrance of sports history. We're going to jump into DeLorean, crack it, up, crack it up to 88 miles an hour, and go back to the year of 1909. Everything that I'm talking about today happened on the fourth day of December. So December 4th, 1909, the first Grey Cup was played. It was in, in Rosedale Field in Toronto. The University of Toronto beat the Toronto Parkdale Canoe Club. 
to win the first Grey Cup. And what stands out about this prestigious event and championship game is it's there's now been 114 of them. It's one of the longest-running traditions of championship games that have existed in the world of sports. A couple little uh, times that they didn't play it during World War One, and a bunch of different changes over the course of the landscape of this, but 114th anniversary of the first Grey Cup today. The same day, one of the most prestigious franchises in the history of professional sports, a 24-time Stanley Cup champion Montreal Canadiens team was formed on his day in 1909. 1921, the APFA, the American Pro Football Association, had, not intentionally, but had its first title game during this day. The Chicago Staleys defeated the Buffalo All-Americans. They ended up being finished, they ended up finishing the season in a regular season tie. So they needed to play a game. The first precursor to the NFL championship game on this day in 1921. 1943, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, a guy who I have openly crucified on this program, talking about the fact that he had no interest in African-American players playing on the same field as white players while he was the commissioner. And while I still believe that to be true, on this day in 1943, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, in a statement, announces that clubs may sign Negroes. Do I let him off the hook for just a statement? No. I think he was kind of pressured into it. I don't think this is something that he ever really wanted to do. And there is a coincidence that a movement for a team to sign a black player didn't start to get any closer until he died less than a year later. 1948, the 13th Iron Bowl. Alabama whooping the hell out of Auburn 55 to nothing. But what stands out about this particular game is the fact that it's the first Iron Bowl played since 1907. So we're talking about 1948, a 41-42 year difference between the last time Alabama played Auburn and obviously the 13th Iron Bowl, and it's something that's been a tradition almost ever since. 1961, one of the better, I think more underrated heavyweight champions, Floyd Patterson, defeated Tom McNeely for the heavyweight title. Now Floyd Patterson is remembered probably more about what happened to him after Sonny Liston beat him. After Sonny Liston beat him for the heavyweight title, he was never the same. Um, he lost several times after that. So everything that he had built up as being this esteemed heavyweight champion was kind of lost after Liston just, I, I just think, kind of knocked the dominance out of him. After his loss to Liston, he was never the same, but still one of the more underrated heavyweight champions in the history of professional boxing. 1965, Masanori Murakami, who was the first Japanese player to play for an MLB team, decides he's going back to Japan. Um, Murakami was a very good pitcher. He ends up deciding to go back to Japan, and obviously this is very fitting in, in the landscape of Major League Baseball where... You know, Shohei Otani is about to get the highest paid contract in the history of, of probably professional sports, right? 
you know, Yamamoto is about to sign a big deal. It's good to remember the first Japanese player to play Major League Baseball, Masanori Murakami. Birthday is on his day, on the fourth day of December. Jesse Burkett, one of the more underrated 19th century players. Um, Three-time batting champion in the National League. He had 240 hits in a season, which was the record up until George Sisler broke it. One of the more underrated hitters in the history of professional baseball. I got him ranked in my top 100 when it comes to the top offensive position players of all time. 1923, Eagle Keys was a Canadian Hall of Fame linebacker. Um, very, very good, very underrated. He was born on this day in 1923. Bernard King, Hall of Fame basketball player, known for his time, of course, with the Washington Bullets and the New York Knicks, born on this day in 1956. 1957, Hall of Fame relief pitcher Lee Smith, who I looked at his track record in his career. I thought he was just as good as Bruce Souter, just as good as Raleigh Fingers, just as good as Goose Gossage. Now, one of the things that hurt him in his Hall of Fame case was the fact that really the second half of his career, baseball changed, didn't go with the two-inning relief pitcher, two-three-inning closer to finish the game. Lee Smith spent the last couple years of his career pitching one inning when the game had kind of changed, and that wasn't his fault, but he wasn't looked at the same, within the same respect as Gossage and Fingers and Suter and others like that. So I'm glad Lee Smith's in a Baseball Hall of Fame, born on this day in 1957. Shannon Briggs, uh, former heavyweight champion boxer, born on this day in 1971. And I think of Shannon Briggs, Briggs, and unfortunately, it was a fight between Shannon Briggs and George Foreman that really began my descent when it came to my interest and my love for professional boxing. You know, George Foreman, yes, in a, game, in a fight against Axel Schultz, I thought was given a decision that probably should have gone the other way. And I thought this was retribution to it. A fight that I watched, and it seemed like Foreman had won the fight. And it was almost like to get Foreman back for the inadvertent decision that was given in his fight against Alex, uh, Axel Schultz. And uh, yeah, if I, if I said his name wrong, I apologize. Axel Schultz. They gave the decision to Shannon Briggs. Stopped following boxing pretty much after that. 1984, Hall of Fame offensive tackle Joe Thomas was born. He was recently inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Congratulations. One of the best offensive linemen in the history of the sport. And we talk about those that we've lost on this day, 1944. Roger Breshnahan, one of the better catchers of the, the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, was known to be the first to wear shin guards, was known to be one of the first, if not the first, to wear a batting helmet. Born on, uh, Died on this day in 1944. Bruce Drake. Uh, the longtime Oklahoma football coach passed away on this day in 1983. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Alwish's Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. If you're interested in hearing me flap my yap mouth, you could listen to me on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, of course, videos on YouTube. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.
My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the Freddie World Series? I was gonna listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. Now they come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park. Not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Knack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if, if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at They put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You're damn well right. Better give him a contract extension. You're damn well right. Better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion. <laughs>